I just want you to know, you know, I had three months penciled in to accomplish these next three things, but I'm already done. At that point, whether you've told me you're raising money or not, I will be begging you to take my money. Begging you because you have checked off for a large degree the first and most important risk factor, which is team execution. This is Finding Your Venture, episode number 23, and it's about finding investors that match your startup. Raising money is time and labor intensive. It's not possible to pitch everybody. So your goal is to find the right investors as quickly as possible. And here's the secret. They're just like you. Investors are just entrepreneurs trying to make money. And if you understand their strategy, then it becomes obvious whether or not your business is a good fit for them. You can actually just ask them what that strategy is and determine whether you're fit or not. You don't have to just pitch and pitch and pitch and just keep hoping and praying. There's an actual approach that works. Don't forget that only 0.05% of companies ever actually raise venture capital. But for a high growth tech startup, this is the goal. And so we're going to talk about venture capital with Paul Brown. Paul's a managing director at eLab, which is a venture capital firm with offices in Ann Arbor and Palo Alto. He's also a regent of the University of Michigan. And before he was a regent, Paul taught this class. Of all the great lessons Paul taught when he was teaching this class, my favorite is the way he demystifies venture capital. A lot of venture capitalists cultivate an air of wisdom and intimidation, and Paul doesn't do that. So let's start by hearing Paul talk about how venture capitalists get into the business. Like, who are these people? We're entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, just like the companies we invest in. There's usually two routes to getting into venture capital as a partner. There is the kind of old school, you're a spreadsheet jockey finance guy from one of the top MBA schools, and you go to a very large fund that is organized much like a a law firm. It's large enough to have associates and you become an associate and you work your way up you know, doing deals. And then there's more of the West Coast model, which is you have deep expertise in a certain area, certain market, certain technology, and you usually are a technologist. You have you know, an engineering degree and you were in a startup and you became very successful, exited that, that startup. And now you're considered an expert and you have a huge network in that. And then a fund is going to start or grow and needs a new partner in that area that you're considered an expert in. Let's say it's, you know, autonomous technology. You exited a company, sold it to Waymo or something like that. You will, that's kind of the traditional route. I kind of came through both. I have an MBA from University of Michigan as well as I practiced law for about a decade. And then I went and managed the state's non-pension investment portfolio of a little over a billion dollars. At the same time, I did a startup with a friend of mine that we were able to grow and sell very successfully right at the time that eLab was was forming. Generally speaking, you put together a deck just like portfolio, just like a startup company would, describing the partner's history and ability and network. You know, when we look and I'll talk about it in one of the other questions, you're just trying to remove risk as an investor. And that's what our LPs are trying to do as well. They're trying to find yield by and but at the same time removing risk. And so that's the team. Does the team have the right expertise, the right experience? Are they investing in an area that looks like as a market that will be successful? 
And, and that's what you try to prove to your network of potential investors. And it's a traditional deck of here's, here's, the, here's the business plan. And here's why we are uniquely positioned to execute on that business plan. And when we do, it will be uh, financially successful. All right. This next part is my favorite. He's going to talk about the mechanics of a fund. How does it work? What is it? And to me, this was the key concept that unlocked my understanding of venture. Understanding how a venture capital firm works is important, whether you want to become an investor yourself, you want to invest with venture capital or in venture capital funds, or probably most relevant to this discussion, if you are an entrepreneur and want to raise money from a venture capital fund. You should always keep in mind that venture capital is a very small sliver of the financing stack in our economy. And it is that because there's a very uh, specific type of business that is what we call venture backable. And quite simply, those are businesses that have extremely high growth rates or growth rate potentials and extremely large market potentials, i.e. the market they're selling in, as well as large margins in their business model. That isn't to say that Lifestyle businesses, which is kind of the the garbage term for everything else, isn't a great opportunity for an entrepreneur. It's just not an opportunity that a venture capital fund can invest in. Basically, very quickly, a venture capital fund consists of three entities, uh, the fund itself, the limited partners, those are the investors, and the general partners. Limited partners are obviously the investors in the fund. This is a small caveat, the general partners as individuals are always, I would assume, it is in our case, investors. They're also LPs besides being the general partners, but limited partners are the investors in the fund. And per federal law, they have to be accredited investor. And very simply, although it changes from year to year, goes up. Basically, if you have a million dollars in net worth, uh, there's some details around that, but you're allowed to be an investor in a venture fund. You are an accredited investor. The fund itself is just a legal entity that the money from the investors goes into and that the investments in underlying portfolio companies are made out of. And the venture capital fund itself hires the management team, a management company, which are the general managers, general partners, the GPs in the fund. That's what I am for eLab Ventures here in Ann Arbor and in Silicon Valley. We then get commitments from our limited partners to invest in our fund. They keep their money until they find an investment to make. And then we make on-demand as needed capital calls to all of the limited partners when we find an individual company to invest in. So if you have 10 invest limited partners, they've each committed a million dollars to the fund, you have a $10 million fund um, that goes out and looks for investments to make. Presumably, that general partnership was able to attract those investors because of some unique ability they have to source close and grow portfolio companies' investments. And that story was convincing enough 
for their investors to entrust them with their money. When the general partners go out and find that investment, let's say investment number one, and they want to invest a million dollars into it, they then make a capital call to the limited partners saying you need to send us in the next 10 days wire to the fund account your pro rata share of this million dollar investment. And if you have 10 investors of equal amount, their pro rata share is $100,000. So they will then wire the $100,000 into the fund's account and the fund will then invest that money into a portfolio company, a startup, so to speak. They will then, the management team will work closely with the entrepreneurs of that company over the months and years, growing it, potentially investing in future rounds of that company till that company exits, at which point the fund will take its pro rata share. Let's say you own 10% of that company, sells for $100 million. The fund gets $10 million and returns it to the investors, again, pro rata. They do that until they have returned, and you, you do that in company one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. As you invest, the life of the fund is basically 10 years. The first three to five years is the investment period in which you're finding your portfolio companies. You want to have you know 10 or more in a distinct fund. And as you invest in these 10 companies at random timing, sometimes they come in fits and starts. You might do three in six months, and you might not do any in a year. But after you've invested in them, grown them, they start to sell or exit at random points. You might own one company for a year. You might own another one for seven years, but you return all the money that you get from those exits to the investors until you have returned all of their committed capital. So each of them gets their million dollars back off the top. And then all of the money after that, the fund receives from exits Generally speaking, it's an 80-20 split. The investors get 80% of the profits and the management team gets 20% of the profits. You have to understand that in venture, it is one of the riskiest, but also it has a very fair risk-return ratio. In the last several years, venture has beat out all other asset classes, including private equity, kind of standard later stage private equity. And so we've, we've had a good run, but because of the risk of any one investment going wrong, you have to have portfolio theory applies. So you have to have enough investments that you get enough swings at the plate. Because generally speaking, you might say a third of your investments will go to zero. A third of your investments will return a two or three X. Call that a single or a double or a triple. And then a third will be home runs or if you're lucky, grand slams. And a home run is any investment that returns the fund. And obviously, a grand slam is an investment that returns a multiple of the fund. And so that third that are the home runs has to return a 10x. So if you make 10 investments of a million dollars each, let's make it an easier rounder. Now, let's say 12 investments. Four of them return zero. Four of them return an average of, let's say, two and a half to three x. And then a third of them return an average of a 10x. And that will give you a 4x return for the fund, which is a fair and kind of, you might say, market return. The other way that a fund operates is besides getting the carry, which is the 20% of the profits, we also take out management fees every year, which is a percentage of the capital under management. Just like your general 401ks take out money to manage the operations, that money 
pays for rent, lawyers, accountants, salaries, etc. But it's the carry that we're really looking for. And probably the most important part of everything I just described is the fact that out of your, in the example I gave, 12 investments you make, you don't know which ones are going to be your third that end up to be home runs and grand slams. And so every one of your 12 investments has to have that potential. And this is where you get to the point where it has to be high growth, high markets, high margin, large markets, uh, large margins. Because we get a lot of great entrepreneurs that come to us and say, this has a very good chance of not going to zero, but no chance of returning a 10x. We say, that's awesome. There are other sources of capital for you because every one of our investments has to have a likelihood of going to 10x. And that's really where understanding how a venture fund works is most important for an entrepreneur, that we have that, that constraint. Venture capitalists get put on a pedestal a lot. When people think about a venture capitalist, they think of Shark Tank, maybe. A situation where the investor has all the power and they can invest in whatever they want based on how much they like the entrepreneur and, or how good the pitch is. But in reality, venture capitalists have a lot more constraints put on them than you would think. First is that they have to actually raise the fund. And when they do that, they're telling a story about what types of companies they're gonna invest in. And if their limited partners are investing in a fund that's gonna deploy capital toward autonomous vehicle technologies, well, no matter how good your startup is, if you're not in that industry, that fund can't invest in you. Another constraint is that they can make very few investments. If a fund has a 10-year lifespan, they might only make maybe one investment a year. I've even met venture capitalists and pitched them and found out later that they actually didn't have any money to invest. So I encourage everybody to ask that question. What fund are they investing out of and where are they in the life cycle of that fund? And the last constraint I wanna talk about is that 10X requirement that they have. Not every great company has the potential to grow that quickly and return 10X in the next five years to a venture capitalist. That money's on top of profits and salaries and costs and everything else. And when you say you're going to grow that fast, there are implications to that. It's really hard to change plans or pivot or go slowly if the market's not ready for whatever it is you're selling. For a lot of companies, venture capital would be wrong, not a good fit. And so if you hear that from venture capitalists, you shouldn't take it personally. And it's not that they don't like your business. It's just that they're constrained and you're constrained by the markets. Given those constraints, it makes sense that a very small percentage of the pitches that they hear are companies that they invest in. Yeah, we invest in about 3% of the pitches we hear. So we hear uh, well over 200 a year and we invest in, you know, three to six companies a year. So how many of the pitches that Paul hears are good companies, lots of potential, but they don't fit for one of the constraints that we already talked about? Oh, a ton. We see at least as many of those as I do businesses that have that 10x potential because they're frankly easier to build. It's, you know, you're looking for lightning in a bottle for a 10x, you know, venture backable company where even many of the ones that you, you know, that you're asking about may be technology companies, but the, the market is just not that large or the cost of putting that to get that type of company together in terms of marketing, acquiring customers doesn't leave you with large enough margins. But yeah, I don't want to give any examples because I don't want anyone to feel bad. But I mean, there's just tons and tons of those that we see. Yeah. And they want them to be venture backable, but they're not. And so hopefully we can educate the entrepreneur on those. Okay, given all that, 
If you find a venture capital fund that you think is a good fit and you want to engage them but get off on the right foot, here's some really great advice for how to do it. This is probably the most important question you're asking me today from an entrepreneur's perspective. I'm going to tell you, ask for a story. I'm going to give you a, a fictional story because I haven't seen it executed on perfectly yet, but it's not that hard. And so hopefully everyone that's listening that is looking to raise money in the future will will follow this. The, the perfect way to approach an investor is one rule of thumb that you hear a lot, but I want to go through the details are don't raise money when you need it. Raise money when you don't. And that's, you know, kind of a flippant saying. So my step-by-step -step story I want to give is kind of a a fictional version of, of the perfect way to approach a, a VC. And Brian, you've heard this a lot of times in the class we taught together, but the best way is we are very approachable as VCs. That's what we do. We listen to pitches. We meet with entrepreneurs. We get to know them. We get to know their technology. We get to know their team. And so don't be shy about approaching us. That's what we want. Cold calls, if that's what it takes. If we don't already know you or have a connection, we absolutely will take cold calls. And so when someone will approach me um, and say, hello, I'm so-and-so. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's the technology or the business I'm developing or have started or will start. I don't need any money right now. Uh, I'm not fundraising, but here's what I need to do in the next three months. I need to accomplish these three goals. And uh, we love to help people, whether we're going to invest in them or not. And if there's any way I can help you achieve those three goals, I will offer that help. And you say, great, good luck. And usually I will never see that person again. <laughs> most people don't follow through. That's team risk. And most teams have, have a lot of risk. But all of a sudden, if you come back to me two months later, I remember you said you'll be back in three months. You come back two months later and say, hey, you know, it's great. I just, you know, I'm not raising money right now, but I want to just give you another update. I remember those three things I needed to accomplish over the next three months. Well, it's two months later and I've already accomplished all three. You know, that's maybe hire someone, maybe get your alpha product uh, or technology built, get incorporated, whatever it may be. And I'll think to myself, wow, I'm really impressed. He just reached back out to me or she, I'm blown away that they executed, i.e. removed some risk in my mind. They know that some team risk they can execute, that they executed on these things and did it ahead of time. Great. I'll, and then you say, look, you know, I know it's now I'm back in two months. It was going to be three. I've already accomplished these things. I'm not raising money, but here are the next three things I need to accomplish in the next three months. You know, if you can help me in any way, that's great. And I will do it if I can. If not, I'll give advice or, or, or wish you good luck. And then again, you come back in a couple of months and say, Hey, I just want you to know, you know, I had three months penciled in to accomplish these next three things, but I'm already done. At that point, whether you've told me you're raising money or not, I will be begging you to take my money begging you because you have checked off for a large degree the first and most important risk factor, which is team execution. Then when you do make that ask, you are in a position where you will get a much higher valuation. You already have a relationship with that investor, trusted, you know, peer-to-peer -peer or mentor-to-peer relationship, which is what we like to have when we finally start to make that investment. So just follow that, you know, that map when approaching. Build relationships with VCs. Now, what VCs to build relationships with? Ones that have expertise 
in your technology or market. Because if someone came to me and they have a great ag tech or bioscience therapeutic technology, I'll say, I have no idea how to help you. And because of that, I will never invest in your company, even if it is high growth, large market, et cetera. We stick to our lanes and you should find an investor who has expertise that can really help you in your market. And then you want to get two or three of them and run that exact same scenario that I just described with all three of them simultaneously. Because this is, you know, this is just like buying a car and human nature applies. If I know that I'm the only one that you have to get money from, I'm going to drive a harder bargain. Always be fair, as most VCs will, but that's just even in subconsciously, it's what you do. If I know I'm in competition with one or two other investors, you know, I'm going to stretch my valuation as far as I can within reason. Paul, thanks for helping us understand how a venture capitalist thinks. I always love teaching with you. I think you're great at explaining really complex things in a simple way. So thank you. Before we end, I asked Paul to put on a different hat, his region hat. What advice does he have for people at a university, young in their life, thinking about starting a business now or in the future? Yeah, and I don't want to uh, limit it just to those that start a business. It may be those within a huge you know, Fortune 500 company that become entrepreneurs within that company and start a new business line or start a new team. And there are a couple of things, and you've heard these stories before also, a couple of things that I think you just have to accept or you should do or kind of mentalities you should take. The one is, and I don't love this, but I've had to try to learn, is you always have to be able to sell. To be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to sell. Sell yourself, sell your idea, sell your product, sell your team. Again, as an entrepreneur within a company or as a startup leader. The other is the story that you know also is no one ever got anywhere by being shy. And I will spare everyone that story. <laughs> but it is totally true. Despite the fact that you went to University of Michigan and, and are obviously therefore brilliant, not everyone else knows that. And you have to be very assertive in order to, to do this, to be an entrepreneur. And you put those two together with the third ingredient, which is maybe there are a lot of valuable things about being educated at University of Michigan. One of the, if not the most valuable thing is your network and that brand that you have the largest alumni organization group in the world. Lean on that network heavily learn how to work that network, become a LinkedIn ninja. Uh, and then link in with every U of M connection uh, you have and use it. And the younger you do that, there are some advantages. Because if you call an older executive out in the world, and you tell them I'm a U of M student or a recent graduate, if they're anything like me, and I know most of them are, they'll just get excited to help you in any way they can building a great advisory board or mentors, building a great group of employees or customers, all the best connection you can use and make is the U of M connection. And it makes it a much straighter line to success. Straighter line to success. I like that. That could be the next tagline for the podcast. One more big thank you to Paul for being on the show. Thank you, Grammatic, for the theme music. And thanks to everybody who's leaving reviews and ratings on Apple Podcast. This is Finding Your Venture. Thanks for listening. Thank you.